So, if you will go ahead and turn in your Bibles, or click open the screen on your Bible app, whichever one you have available to you, to the book of Exodus, chapters 1 and 2, so the very beginning of the book of Exodus. That is the second book of the Bible, so if you open up to the very front, you'll see Genesis. It's going to be immediately the book afterwards. Uh, if you're looking at our Pew Bible, I can tell you exactly, we're going to be on page 47, and we say, have those Pew Bibles not just so you can find the text when I tell you what page it's on, but if you need a Bible, we want to provide you with one. It is our hope to get a Bible in people's hands and get it openly and ultimately in their heart. So, we are going to get into the text today. And I'm going to ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to start in chapter 1, the big one, and then verse 6, the little 6. And we're going, to, we're going to be going through both chapters 1 and 2, but for the sake of our time today, at the beginning, we're going to just read verses 6 through 14. And then we'll continue on as we go. Here's what the Scripture says as it was penned by Moses but illuminated and inspired by the Holy Spirit and gifted to us. It says this, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. Well, that's a killjoy starting out right there, isn't it? But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous. Man, that's a lot happening. They were following the Genesis orders, I guess. And they became extremely numerous, so the land was filled with them. A new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. And he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, otherwise they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Israelites assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python and Ramses and such and supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Let's pray. Lord God, this is Your Word. You have provided for us. You've inspired it. You, You saved it and preserved it for us. And we have it today so that we may know You, what You have said, and what You have done. And God, I pray that it would help us to know You as the Redeemer who helps set His people free. God, help me to teach today, but may you be the one that inspires and, and, and speaks to us and moves us and helps open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds, so that we may follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So our goal when we communicate the Scripture is to help people to experience the life change that comes from knowing the God who provided His Word to us. It's His gracious gift. And so we make it a part of our worship gathering every week and make it a part of our disciple groups. We make it a part of our life groups to make sure that we're seeing what it says and showing what it means and, and seeing how it applies. But we're also making sure people understand this is no just mere book. 
It's not to be equitable with all the other things you may have in your library. It is higher. It is loftier. It is a greater gift of God's grace. And it's useful and profitable for us so that we may be adequately equipped. So we need to ask, am I willing to trust and to follow what I have come to know as God's Word? So here we have this book. And to understand what it says and what it means, we see that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it was penned to the children of Israel the Jewish people, the Hebrews, by Moses as he was in the, the, the time of delivering them from Egypt, God helps Moses, inspires him to write Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and most of Deuteronomy. Obviously, he didn't write the part where he died. Um, you know, that was someone added that little note at the end that Moses died. You know, kind of hard to write something after, you know, you're dead. So, but just saying that's there. But in it, it shows us why we've been given it. So that they may know the Lord. They may see what He has done. They may hear the calling of what it means to be living faithfully under His grace. And they may be reminded that God is faithful and a Redeemer. That's the entirety of these books. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now when we get to the specific text though, we have a, we have an aim. What are we trying to learn about what's going on here in Genesis, I mean, in Exodus 1 and 2? And so the aim of our sermon today is to behold, to really take in the unimaginable links that God would go and work to provide His rescue for people, to, for His people. So how do we do that? How do we look and see this? Well, I want you to notice a few things that we see some elements to today's story. The first element is that of the predicament. You ever been in a predicament? Some people call it a pickle. Yeah, you know. I'm in a jam. I'm in a bad circumstance. Many of us have been there, but I would dare say none of us have ever been absolutely in the full totality of where the Israelites were. We we have never felt such gravity of what they've been dealing with. But there is a predicament that we all face. We're going to get to that. So in verses 8 through 22, we see... The predicament. And it is a grave one. And I don't use that word lightly. I mean, it's, it's like death. Living, but being dead. First of all, the people in verses 8 through 10, they're politically enslaved. We read this, that a new king who did not know about Joseph, he didn't know what Joseph had done for the people of Egypt, or he didn't care. Some people believe that this king, that in the different dynasties that led through Egypt, there was the dynasties that were during Joseph's day, which would have been around, uh, let's see, 12, 1440. So around uh, 1800 BC, 1800 years before Christ, that that dynasty had ceased to exist. And then the, there's actual archaeological, archae, ooh, that was a bad pronunciation of that word. The grammar police are going to get me today. But archaeology shows us that there was a, a kingdom that rose called the Hyksos that reigned for several hundred years and then that generation died and there was another generation. And somewhere in that time period, the shifting of history, the shifting of knowledge as people would come and go and try to wipe away the knowledge of what was past, it, it, it went away. And this king did not know about Joseph nor care. And he saw what had been happening to the Israelites. These people... That whether they knew it or not, they were definitely obeying that Genesis command. They were rapidly expanding. They were multiplied. The land was filled with them. A people that started out as only 70 
are now numerous. Some estimate to be around 600,000 just the men. That's a lot of people. That's a huge city. That's, that's a large group. But they were unfavorable. These people that had came to Egypt as refugees from famine that was a part of their land as a family and had been once seen as people of privilege. They were connected to royalty, if you will. Joseph was the prime minister. Now they were seen as not even connected. They were seen as unfavorables. They were now on the receiving end of the Egyptians' discrimination and target of fear. You know, I know that. You don't see anyone written opposing the direction that Pharaoh goes. Most of the people are like, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds about right. That, that's probably the best wise decision that we can make. And they became pushed in a place of forced slave labor and removed of any of their politically, political freedoms. So they had no right, no authority to assemble and live for their own right. They're politically enslaved. They have no power of their own. But not only are they politically enslaved, they're economically enslaved. We read in verses 11 through 14 how the Egyptians then assigned taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And, and we see the major components here. First, they oppressed them. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. So it was like, well, we're doing the oppression. We're making it really hard. But they seem to keep multiplying. They ruthlessly worked them, verse 13. They made them bitter with difficulty, verse 14. And their job was the job of making brick out of mud and straw for these construction projects. Their job was out in the fields for agricultural projects. This was the slave labor. Now, I wanted to let you know that it is probably not the only slave labor that is happening in Egypt. There were people of authority and there were people without authority. But a large, large number of that slave labor came from Israel. They were economically enslaved. They didn't have the right to their own job, their own vocations. Whatever they were told to do, that's what they had to do. Period. And they received no benefit from that. All the benefit went to the Egyptians. So you see a people politically enslaved having no right or freedom of power or say in their own direction in life, no say in their own economy. By the way, you may think slave labor is a thing of the past. Guess again. Slave labor and slavery definitely happened back then, but actually today, according to statistics, there are more slaves today than there have been in the entirety of history. And it comes to human trafficking, an estimated 30 million people are sold and put into human trafficking today. This is a modern-day problem, not a day-in-antiquity problem. And they're in human trafficking for both perverse and greedy criminals. It's the second largest organized crime in the world. And yes, it even happens in America. Politically enslaved. Economically enslaved. Not only that, they were socially enslaved. What do they do with their culture? What do they do with their traditions? What do they do with their morals? In verses 15 through 22, we said the king of Egypt then said to the Hebrew midwives, because they kept multiplying, so what they were doing was not stymieing the growth and the multiplication of these unfavorable refugees. So the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, these would have been the, the doctors of the time to help birth 
some of whose name were Shifra and the others whose name was Pua. When you help Hebrew women give birth, maybe they were the chief midwives, we don't know. Observe them as they deliver. And if a child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to the Hebrew women, They're not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. Now, some people would say, So are the midwives lying? Is that a good thing if it's giving you to better gains? We don't actually know that the wives were lying. That actually could have been happening. Before the midwives ever get there, God in his province could have been providing that. So we don't know if it's necessarily a lie. But God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very numerous. So here they go, they keep multiplying. And since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile. But let every daughter live. What we see here is a social enslavery, a social injustice that's incredible. Remember, this is the day before ultrasounds. This is the day before tests or anything like that. All of a sudden, you would have nine months of fear and finding out you were pregnant. And on that day of birth, if it was a boy, you could not only hear the extreme amount of joy that a child had been born, but the extreme amount of fear that in a few moments this child is going to die. That was the gravity of what was going on. It's a social injustice. But later we see that God brings His justice against the Egyptians for these heinous atrocities. Sometimes we look at the amount of the plagues and we think, wow, how could God be so brutal? He killed all the firstborn. See what the Egyptians were doing and God will be just. But I want you to also notice how Pharaoh pushes this political and economical and social and slavery. He uses the pretext of a supposed war to defend the persecuting of these foreigners. That's how he does it. He says, there could be war one day and what's going to happen? All these people here, they're going to turn against us. A people that had once lived in privilege, a people that had enjoyed some of the best of the land. But now they're turned over and taking the brunt of hatred. This is not just an antiquity problem. Blaming things on ethnic minorities has always been a convenient excuse. Why? Because the echoes of racism throughout the ages, it shows and it proves the fallenness and depravity of human nature. It shows that we can't just all get along left to ourselves. Left to ourselves, we kill each other. It's an ugly, brutal fact. And we need a Redeemer to show us what justice looks like. And let us be reminded when we look at these facts of what's going on that they're preserved for us. Not so we can say, oh, poor Israelites. But we can see, wow, God, you are just in bringing your reckoning for your people. The Bible reminds us over and over again, lest we be fooled, that God is just wants me to be happy or God's not going to hold me account or, or I can act like I didn't know. No, the Bible tells us that God is just over and over again. Psalm 99 4 says, The mighty king loves justice and he has established fairness and administered justice and righteousness in Jacob and his land. It says in Psalm 103 6, The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed 
executing the exploited and giving food to the hungry. The Lord frees prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. The Lord loves righteousness. The Lord protects resident aliens. The Lord helps the fatherless and the widows. And He frustrates the way of the wicked is what Psalm 146.7 says. In the commands to the Deuteronomy, uh, through Deuteronomy to the people of Israel, He says He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and he loves the resident alien giving him food and clothing you are also to love the resident alien since you were residents in the land of egypt later on the prophet's day hundreds of years later this reminding would come up again in the book of isaiah when the call is to learn to do what is good, to pursue justice, to correct the oppressor, to defend the rights of the fatherless, to plead the widow's cause. They're there. Micah 6 8 says, He showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love faithfully, and to walk humbly with your God. Here in this people, in this group, you see a people that are not only politically enslaved and economically enslaved and socially enslaved, you see the spiritual enslavement that's binding them. They're not free to worship the Lord in the ways that have been passed down to them. They didn't have the law yet. They didn't have the book of Leviticus. They didn't have all these temple aspects. But you know what they did have? They had the pattern. The pattern that was passed down, that when Abraham found the places where he was going, guess what he did? He built an altar and he gave a sacrifice of an innocent lamb to the Lord. And this was perpetuated. But even in the book of Egypt, the reason that they ended up in the land of Goshen just on the other side of the Nile was because what they did would have been considered odious, ugly, savage to the people of Egypt. Now they're prevented to follow through with these examples that were passed down to them. Not only prevented, but they're also surrounded by imagery of idolatry in a way that would leave a lasting negative impression. You want to know where the golden calf imagery came from? Go back to what was going on in Egypt. It leaves an impression upon them. And in many cases, the Pharaoh himself was considered a deity, either by himself or by others. You see, spiritual enslavement is, a, is, is, the, is what happens when all these things come together. When a person doesn't have the free expression of their faith, of their thought, and the exercise thereof. That's what happens when you don't have that. You have slavery. Now this can happen through different means. It can happen by the personally through the flesh that we become enslaved to the habits and desires that gratify us. We can be enslaved by the direction of the world, as in the case here. We can be enslaved by the oppression of an enemy that's demonic. All of these activities are happening. And when we look at what's going on, Pharaoh, he becomes the epitome, the image of someone who rejects God's plan, that they could not be a special people. They're unfavorable. They're, they're people that are slaves. They cannot have a special part of God's plan. They cannot leave this land to be their own nation. And he deny, becomes a denier and rejecter of God's power as we'll see later on. But that's the predicament. I would mind to say that many people find themselves in a different type of predicament today, but nonetheless one that requires the hand and deliverance of God, the Redeemer. I don't know where that it may be in your life or in the life of those you know. 
But regardless of their predicament, it is a lot less than the greatness of the one who is God. Here we see the providence of God come to fruition. We see Moses' emergence, his, his birth. You see, God had never intended for Egypt to become the promised land for the people of Israel. In all probability, they would probably have wanted to do that. That's, that's what Spurgeon wrote. He says, in all probability, they went to a good land. They were being provided for. They seemed to be getting along with the local leaders there. And many times when that happened throughout Israel's history, they would say, yeah, let's just stay here. Let's just do what's copacetic and seems okay. And if we have to meld and lose our identity, that's fine. That's okay. We'll do that. But in God's providence, he knew. This is, this is not surprise God that this happened. And he uses it. He brings it about to show his deliverance. And he uses an ordinary baby that comes from a family of Levi. Verses 1-10 through of chapter 2 says, Now a man from the family of Levi, he married a Levite woman. Well, that woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Imagine trying to keep quiet a three-month-old. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. And she placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. And Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile where all her servants' girls walked along the riverbank. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl and, and took it and opened it and saw him, the child. And there he was, the little boy crying. And she felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. She knew what was going on. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? No, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother, and then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I'll pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So I want you to notice a few things in this birth of Moses. How God's providence, that means His provision, His hand that shows His might and His grace and, and deliverance in time of need is there working in, within the realm of history. You notice His birth. God worked to bring about a child. Nothing prevented this woman from becoming pregnant and, and bringing this child to birth in a day and age when medicine was not that great. God's providence is all over the giving of life. You see God's providence to His parents' brave conviction. They disobeyed the law to preserve life and honor God. They, you see God's care over this child at the Nile. I want you to know this. The Nile River is not some little babbling brook. It's a massive, heavy, flowing river. And in that massive, heavy, flowing river, guess what? They got crocodiles. They got hippopotamus. They got rats. They got all kinds of creatures. And so putting a baby in a basket in the Nile, and we may see that's a beautiful Bible story, but that was a dangerous, dangerous activity. And yet, God provides and cares for the work in the basket. It didn't sink, it didn't get eaten, it didn't end up in the wrong place. 
You see God's work through Pharaoh's daughter who saw this child, knew immediately it was a Hebrew child who had been put in the river. And she had mercy on him. God used an unbeliever to have mercy on a child that he would later use. We see God's work through his sister Moses, who at the moment seized the opportunity and said, hey, I know a person that can nurse this child for you. She put herself out there. It probably wasn't too hard for Pharaoh's daughter to click and think, you know what, I'm not, I wasn't born yesterday. You've been watching this basket. It belongs to your family. But sure, go bring his mother. I'll allow that. And I'll pay her wages. We see the work through Moses' mother who was able to do this and, and be with her child longer than three months. Usually a, a child in the Hebrew family was weaned through a process of three years. So instead of being in the child's life just a few matters of minutes or a matter of hours or a matter of days or a matter of weeks or a matter of months, he's able, she's able to be in the child's life a matter of years. And then you see his work through Pharaoh's household. This child is allowed to live and be grown in this home where it was against the law to save a Hebrew boy. God's grace and providence is all over the emergence of Moses. But it's all over how he was influenced and how he was grown up. In verses 11-15, through 15, we see Moses going, uh, growing older. And one day he decides to leave out of his household. Now, we don't know if it was all like the whole Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments or not. We don't think that, I don't, I don't think Yule Brenner was there as the Pharaoh, but he went out. It wasn't the white dude Charlton Heston either. <laughs> but he went out and he observed all the slave labor. And then he sees someone beating down another slave. And make no mistake about it, he is not defending the slave alone. It says very clearly in the Bible, he looks this way and that to see if anybody's around. And then he struck him down. This was an act of malice. It was an act of murder. There's no way getting around what Moses had did according to God's eyes. The Scripture makes it there. And then he hit him in the sand. And he thinks, all right, this is the moment. Maybe, maybe a few people will know this. Maybe the Hebrews will know this and they'll see it as we're going we're gonna to rebel. We can do this. But as he goes and he sees two Hebrew slaves fighting, they push back. They're like, you're going to kill one of us too? You know, we, we don't see this as an act of rebellion. We see this as an act of malice. Moses says, what, I know, what I've done certainly known, and apparently it's not going the way I thought it was. So as much influence as there, he has to flee. He has to run. And he runs for good reason. says, when Pharaoh heard about it, he tried to kill Moses, the one that once had favor and privilege is now the outlaw, the fugitive. And he could not blame it on a one-armed man. He did it himself. He runs away and ends up going to the land of Midian. And there I want you to notice not only God's providence over his emergence and his influence growing up, but his consequence. You would think after a man had committed murder and went on the run to a foreign land and would live 40 years away, that's done. They're done. Write them off. They're no good. There's no way. But even there, verses 15 through 22 says, When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. This is hundreds of miles away. And he sat down at a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and fill the troughs of water for their father's flock. Then some arrived and drove them away. But Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. 
And when they returned to their father, Ruel, who we'll later see is also named Jethro. Yes, somebody can have two names. Some people have more than that. Uh, he asked, why have you come back so quickly? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew the water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? He asked his daughters, why didn't you leave him there behind? Let invite him to dinner. He's got seven daughters. He's like, I know where this is going. Moses agreed to stay, stay with the man. And he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And she gave birth to a son named Gershom. He says, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. And they cried out in their cry for help. The cause of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites and God knew. So here Moses is. He's an outlaw on the run. He's, he's in the midst of his consequence. And even there, God is not done. God's providence is working through time and helping him learn. Get, be re-educated, if you will. He ends up in the tribes of Midian. Midian was, was some of the other sons that happened out of Abraham. After his wife Sarah passed, he married a woman named Keturah and had kids. But they did not become part of the children of Israel. But they did pertain some of the activities of worship that was passed down from generation to generation back to Abraham. And so here, the priest of Midian is one that's trying to carry on those traditions of worshiping the Lord God based on what his ancestor had done. Based on his limited knowledge of God, he is honoring the Lord. And he teaches Moses about this history. In this time of struggle, though, whenever Moses gets there, you see an immediate lesson, an immediate shift. Moses is enough of a warrior that he was able to kill a the Egyptian taskmaster. But when these shepherds come and they're abusing these girls, he doesn't kill them. He runs them away. You're automatically seeing a reshaping of his thinking about how things end up needing to be dealt with. Moses ends up being gaining a trade as a shepherd and learning the wilderness. He learns how to live there and, and, and grow in his knowledge of God. He learns what it means to gain a family and, and learning to lead and guide and discipline. James Boyce wrote this about this moment. He says that when you think about the span of Moses' life, the 120 years, that Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something. But then he was 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. But then he spent the next last 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. That over life, no matter how long it took, God was bringing about His work and showing that He is not We see in Moses, though, a picture of how God provides His Redeemer. Think about the comparisons here. Moses is not the full Redeemer, not the full Savior, not the full Messiah. But it does give us a little glimpse that just as He was born in a place that was distant, in a place that hated people, Jesus was also born in a place that hated His people and He had to escape an evil ruler through His parents. Just as Moses had to sojourn for a time in a foreign land. So did Jesus in Egypt. Just as Moses had silent years, so did Jesus. And just as Moses would end up giving us the law from the mountaintop, Jesus would show us the fulfillment of law and grace in his Sermon on the Mount. But as we see, the picture of Moses is not a perfect picture. He commits murder. He does the the move of trying to make things happen in his own way. There's a difference. We, in it, we see the perfection of Jesus. But now we just see the predicament and we see the providence that reminds us that God is not done. We see that God is not distanced by showing us His presence. 
It says in verses 24 through 25 of chapter 2 that God heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Israelites and God knew. When we talk about the Lord, we are not talking about someone distant. We're talking about someone who gives His very near presence. Who stays with His people. He is glued to them. He will not be separated to them. He is faithful to them even though we are faithless at times. To him. God remains. And we see two white reasons that God works. One, He is moved by the plight of His people. God does not like to see His people suffering. And He hears their prayers. He sees their groanings. God knows what is going on. When we speak of the Lord, we are not talking of one who is distant. The Bible says in Psalm 34, 15, that when we speak of the Lord, it says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their cry for help. His presence never leaves us or forsakes us. A few weeks ago, we were hearing a speaker in this room. He was reminding us that sometimes when we come to church, we're like saying, well, I'm going to go experience the presence of God. But whenever, uh, whenever church is over, we click the, the God light out. All right, we're, we'll come back and see you later. You know, on the next next week's reunion. But that is not how God is. God goes with us whatever whatever we go through. So when you face those days, He is with you. Good or bad, He is with you. And God moves, bringing about the work of His providence in the middle of their predicament by showing His presence that is there to hear. And is moved by the plight of His people, but He's also moved by the potency of His promise. See, when God brings a promise. He doesn't mix words. He doesn't skew them like, eh, I might get around to that. Oh, I might do that. Now, when God speaks something, it directly reflects His character. It re- directly re- reflects His power, His might, His holiness. And so when He had made this promise to Abraham that in Genesis 12, the promise was this. This is my covenant. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Seven promises. That's a potent promise that went to one man and his descendants. It shows the character of God. When we talk about the covenants that God makes, what is a covenant? That's a big churchy word. Sally Lloyd-Jones, the daughter of, of Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a, a famous pastor uh, that preached the word faithfully in England. He says, she says this, a, a covenant is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love in a promise. That's what it is. When we see God's covenant, we see it said, I am sealing this to show you that my presence is not one that's distant from you. It is faithful to you. You think you have struggles. You think no one is paying attention. I am there with you. Even in the predicament, my providence is at work. My presence is there. And I have a procedure. I have a procedure for bringing in 
this redemptive work. And when we look at the book of Exodus, man, it is a book of mission. It is God on mission to redeem His people. When we think about Exodus-shaped redemption, well, it's going to demand an Exodus-shaped mission that comes from the church. What does that mean? It means that when we talk about redemptive mission endeavors, we're going to see two ways God directly works among the people of Israel. And just as He worked then, He still works today. The first is this. Redemptive mission endeavors, they are practical care alongside spiritual proclamation. They must include that. They must reach to the very physical needs of what's going on. These people are enslaved physically and spiritually. These people are being distressed and treated ruthlessly. So they need the message of God's hope, but they need the help of God's hand. They need both. It comes through His people. What's the notice about that? What do we need to remember about that? We need to beware of social action with no evangelism. Because people need both. Beware of any type of social action that says, oh, we need to help people and be a light in the darkness, but we're not going to tell them about Jesus. People need both. What's the other part of it? Redemptive mission endeavors, they equal spiritual proclamation alongside practical care. What does that mean? You need to watch out for the other side too. Beware of any evangelism that says, oh, we'll just give them the spiritual message, but we're not actually going to be there to help people. We're going to show that God is all about something distant and far away, but cannot, His power is limited to help you in the here and now, and it's no way possible that He could ever use me to do it. That's what we say when we limit either one of these. One pastor said, justice is what love looks like in public. What we see in God's work here is He's hearing their groaning. That He knows. And he's preparing a procedure to deliver His people. God will not leave oppression alone. God will not leave those oppressed alone. He will bring about a reckoning. And He chooses to use His people to do it. He chooses to use His people to do And to be that rescue. To be those influencers. To be those ones that emerge out of the darkness. And weak as ordinary as they may be, they reveal God's power and hand at work. God says, I can work through any predicament. My hand of grace is is throughout history. And there's things that I have been doing in the background and in the forefront both that declare I am ready to use my people and my presence never leaves them, but they need to follow my direction and not neglect what I'm telling them to do to provide practical care alongside spiritual proclamation and spiritual proclamation alongside practical care. But in case, in case we sit there and think, hmm, let me live in the realm of whataboutism. I heard someone use that word today, uh, this week. That where we try to justify our means and our activity by putting the blame on something or shifting and saying, well, what about them? Or what about what they did? Or or what about what's going on here? And we try to justify and and nudge our way out of what God has said. I'm not talking about what about them. I'm saying what about you? But in case we try to justify it, you know, we say, well, we can look at the rest of the Bible and we see that Israel was a very sinful people. Yes, but they needed help and they needed freedom in this moment 
Not because of their sin, but because of Egypt's sin. Because, not because they were completely perfect, but because there are imperfect people that were oppressing them brutally. And they needed a rescuer. Some people may say, well, the New Testament's a whole different way of redemption. It's, it's not the same. The New Testament does not replace the physical aspects of God's redemption work with some mere spiritual aspect of it. It adds the greater element. It says, this was the incomplete. Now you can see the fulfillment that it's not just a promise, it's actual provision in Jesus. You may say, well, God doesn't work that way these days. No, the Bible tells us that God is immutable. He is unchanging. His character remains the same from the very beginning to the very end. The same God that we see in the Bible in Genesis, the same God we see in, in Revelation. The same God that you see working through Moses to bring out the plagues is the same one that went to the cross. The lengths that he goes are unimaginable to deliver his people. But they happen. They're not just unimaginable. God gives us a clear picture, says you wouldn't imagine it. But this is what I do. This is how I work. You may try to justify and say, well, God does that, may have done that for Israel, but that's not what God wants to do for other people. Why? Why would you say that? Where's that change in the Bible? Where's that scripture? I don't see that anywhere. We may try to say, well, maybe I don't want to get involved. I don't know if there's any good that can really be done with that. Well, just in case we're trying to think that, that this is not something God honors, go back to see what God did for the midwives. He honored them for their faithfulness. He honored them for their direction. He honored them for their boldness to do what is right and to be there in the midst of an oppressed people. God works to free the oppressed. And the greatest oppression we could ever face is that that comes from our own sin and rebellion. The chosen oppression, if you will, that each of us face called sin. God being the holy, just, mighty God that He is, He sees the offense of that sin and what does He do? He goes to unimaginable lengths to say, I sin myself in the form of a Savior. I'll be that one to carry the banner. I'll be the one to die on that cross for you. And now I'm giving you the choice of faith to trust in who I am and what I've done, my redemption for you. And based on that, I can be there to not only deliver you in those physical areas, but I'm there to deliver eternity for you. That which was extremely out of reach. I present that to you. And I present a life that is different. A life that has my hand all over it to walk with you through any predicament, to show you my hand of providence, to be there with my very near presence, and to guide you with my procedures of redemption so that others may know what I've done for you, I will do for them. Let's pray. Lord God, today, I ask that as we take this moment to respond to Your Word, to Your message. I pray that we would take it to heart. We would see the gravity of what You did in, in, through Israel, through, in the middle of Egypt. That You would show us that, God, You go to incredible lengths to bring deliverance, to bring redemption. So God, help us once again be reminded that nothing is beyond your power. Nothing is beyond your ability to bring about that hope. To use weak people. To use people in the middle of a dark time to bring about freedom. To bring about rescue. Show us and remind us again that you're able to do immeasurably more. 
And God, not only show us, send us. Send us onward to carry that hope to others. In this moment of response, God, at this time, help us not neglect what it means to trust You. Help us not neglect what it means to obey You and follow and surrender after You. God, use this moment in a way that brings an act of worship, an act of faith, a free response to find freedom from the Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.